Listen up, all you New York fans. Veteran New York sports talk host John Dostromsky gives his unique take on all the big stories in the Big Apple and beyond, including guest conversations, gambling picks, and reactions from you, the listener. Check out New York, New York with John Dostromsky on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. Joining me today are Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. Hello. And Ringer senior editor Ben Lindbergh. And I didn't mess that up this time. How you doing, Ben? Nice job. No edits on that introduction. Hello. Uh, That's a mouthful. (laughs) Already I'm tripping over the title. Guys, I saw something weird on TV last night. Uh, I've been trying to let the Phillies go. Uh, from this this playoff hunt, and they just keep pushing my face back into the slop of shit that is the race to the second annual and a wild card, and say, "Eat it, you pig, you pig, <laughs> you dirty pig." We're gonna keep going to the end. Uh, last night, the Phillies started. This is one of my favorite bits in in baseball this year is that the Phillies had a historically bad bullpen last season, and so now what they're doing is having bullpen games. They've let go uh, a couple of starters. Uh, they've traded, you know, traded Spencer Howard. They've uh, DFA'd Vince Velasquez. They've gotten rid of Chase Anderson. And now we're doing bullpen games. And the bullpen blew the lead early. Uh, well, not even a lead. They got down 7 nothing, And then the Phillies came back to win 17-8. This is the first team... The first game in NL history in which a team has trailed by seven and come back to win by nine or more. We're going to, like, these guys are still in the pennant race, and it's going to be awful. And <laughs> I, I'm not even sure what to, to do with this. <laughs> it's nice to see the Phillies be on the other end of a bullpen meltdown, at least, because they've had plenty where they were the team coughing it up. And in this case, it was the Cubs coughing it up. But yeah, I mean, an inspiring comeback, obviously, adds to Bryce Harper's burgeoning MVP case. But this NL wildcard race, and, and I know the Phillies are still in the NL East race, too. But right now, I mean, you've got the Phillies 
DFAing Vince Velasquez so they can do poorly pitched, poorly pitched bullpen games. Then you've got the Padres picking up Vince Velasquez because that's how desperate they are that they will take anyone at this point. Give me your Vince Velasquez's and your Jake Arrieta's and your Ross Detweiler's. We'll take them. So that's how dire the straits are for some of these teams. Like these are not good teams. <laughs> it's a good race. And to me, I think the race matters more than the quality of the teams. But there are some people who think, you know, I can't get that into a race where the teams are just like almost, you know, trying to lose. It's like who will stumble less, who can get yeah. out of their own way for a few weeks. Well, the, the shambolic nature of it has a drama all its own, I yeah. think, where if it's competitive to a certain extent, it maybe this is, I think this actually might be more true in baseball than in other sports where as long as the contest is close, it doesn't matter how sloppy it is. Uh, it you know it has its own its own charms, but as opposed to say the NFL game from last night, which was just a disaster. I think from a, a neutral perspective, I can understand why this would annoy Dodgers and Giants fans. But from a neutral perspective, the fact that there's such a large gap kind of has me even more intrigued right now that Dodgers who hold the se- uh, the first wild card spot have a 17 game lead on the Cardinals who hold the second but only by half a game but yeah that's a 17 game gap i imagine that will grow between now and the end of the season because both the Dodgers and Giants are better than all the teams behind them and i think if this gets to like a 20 game gap there would be even more interest because it's just a, a one-game scenario, and even with Max Scherzer potentially starting that game for the Dodgers, there's still like at least a one-in-three chance that the Dodgers or Giants would lose that game. So I think that has me even more wanting like an 82-80 and 80 second and a wild card just to ratchet up the disparity between the two teams. Do, do you think we get up to a 20-game gap? Because there's something like patently absurd about a 20 game gap in a baseball season. (laughs) Is either of you in favor of some sort of mechanism to penalize the bad team in the wildcard matchup? I've seen various people suggest like, you know, pretty far fetched ideas, like maybe you would have the bad team start down a run or two or something like that just to reward the team that is so much better that finds itself in this coin flip 50-50 winner takes all wildcard game. I mean, it is a, a ridiculous scenario if the ending of this great NL West race, which has been wonderful regardless of the resolution, whichever team ends up on top, the Dodgers or the Giants there, is going to be facing a, a far, far inferior opponent. And While I agree that there's something to just like embracing the randomness of it and the absurdity of it, it does sort of suck. I think as someone who likes the regular season and values success over the six months, like generally I like the wildcard game. It's been fun. But in a case like this, I could see myself swinging the other way where it's like, hey, you should be rewarded in some fashion for being a far better team, for constructing a better roster, for being better over the long run, as opposed to just having things go your way in a single game. But I don't know exactly what the mechanism would be to appropriately punish the poor team in that matchup. I think the easiest mechanism would be to just say the Dodgers and Giants both get a spot in the divisional round and the worst division winner in this case probably Atlanta mm-hmm. would have to play the wild card game the NBA has sort of a scenario like this where it used to be that the winners of each division automatically gained home court advantage in the first round and it used to be even a top 3 seed and that produced really 
skewed playoff brackets where if the top two teams were in the same division, then they would have to play in the second round of the playoffs instead of the conference finals. The NBA has since changed that by basically saying, yeah, you can hang a division banner into rafters if you want, but that doesn't matter at all for playoff seating. I don't think MLB would want to go that route. I think divisions matter more for baseball and also the schedules are certainly more imbalanced than they are in the NBA with division rivals playing each other 19 times a year as opposed to just four as they do in the NBA. So I don't think that's a scenario we'd find anytime soon, but that's probably the most fair if you don't want to run the risk of the Dodgers or Giants winning 102 games and then getting eliminated in the first round or even before the first round, really. So there's two problems with that. One is it just so happens that the two best team, <clears throat> the two best or highest performing teams in baseball happen to be in the same division this year. And that is very seldom the case. And so if we go through, you know, trying to solve for this problem that might only crop up once every 10 or 15 years, and you're going to wind up with a bunch of arcane Byzantine and other adjectives, uh, playoff structures to try to solve for a problem that isn't really a lasting problem because there is a huge gulf every year between the cream of the crop teams and the teams that just sort of sneak into the playoffs. And sometimes that happens after two teams. Sometimes that happens after six. And it that fault line, and this is the same thing with the, the NCAA basketball tournament. Like, oh, it's such an injustice that, that the bubble teams, uh, you know, that teams on the wrong side of the bubble don't get into to the uh, into March Madness, and uh, we need to do something, you know, expand the field. Well, all that does is just move the bubble somewhere else. It just it changes the the line, which is which is going to exist no matter how you separate the sheep from the goats. The other thing, and this is not like a that was a practical objection. This is like a philosophical objection. Is you sickos wanted this, you <laughs> Bud Selig, you TV executives. You wanted the second wild card. You wanted this winner-take-all game, knowing what could happen. And guess what? It's happening, and you're going to like it, you absolute freaks. <laughs> so you, you've you made your bed. You're going to sleep in it. Here uh, is a very funny thing I just pulled up, which is I remember writing back in 2017 when the Yankees played the Twins and the Rockies played the Diamondbacks, that it was a really large gap between the two wild cards. And I just pulled up the standings from that year because that was... Uh, to that point, the biggest gap ever between wildcard teams. I believe that is still the biggest gap ever between wildcard teams. You know what the gaps were between those teams that year? Six wins. Six. Games? Six. Yeah. <laughs> and now the Dodgers are going to, or, or Giants, I suppose, because there's only one game separating them now, are going to be ahead by roughly 20 games. I'll be honest, it didn't occur to me that that more than like six I'll say like eight is the biggest gap between wildcard games that I could have reasonably foreseen happening. It's just so it's took such a special uh, confluence of circumstances to, I mean, the giants going on, what are they on? Like 105 win pace or something like that. Uh, keep it, you know, not, not even keeping pace with the Dodgers, but being out ahead of the Dodgers, we expected the Padres to be it like within six to eight games of, of whoever won the NL West as well. And there, you know, we've already talked about their, their pitching deficiencies. And the rest of the NL, apart from the Brewers, has gone in the crapper. And so, you know, I, I have a hard time treating this as a systemic problem rather than just a random confluence of, of things. Yeah, Not maybe, everything happens for a reason. Maybe it'll be a once every 20 years thing because I just pulled up the 2001 standings because that's the last time I remember there being two 
teams in a division that were so much better than everyone else. And that was the year Seattle famously won 116 games, Oakland won 102 games. And if there had been a second wild card at the time, it would have been uh, Minnesota with 85 wins. So we would have had a 17 game gap 20 years ago. But yeah, I suppose if it only happens once every 20 years, it's really unfair that one time and find the other 19 years. But like you said, Mike, it depends what you want, because I think frankly, the concept of the wildcard game isn't fair at all. Even if there's a four or five game gap, that's obviously more meaningful over 162 games than one. But if you're in it for the drama, then it's hard to imagine a more dramatic scenario than what we're going to have this year. I guess the consolation, if you're a Dodgers fan and you're looking at the wild card, which they might not end up being the wild card team, they're only a game back of the Giants now. And I feel like I've been saying for several months now, they're only X games back of the Giants and they're just perpetually there, it seems like. But if they don't overtake San Francisco, they go into the wild card game with their pick of two of the top pitchers you would want in a wild card game this year. And we did our draft of pitchers you would want in wild card games. And the Dodgers will have to do a little draft of their own to decide whether they want Max Scherzer or Walker Bueller in that situation. Whichever one they go with would match up pretty favorably with any ace they could encounter there. I mean, there are good pitchers who could easily knock them out of that game, whether it's Zach Wheeler or, well, you Darvish has, has not looked great lately. Joe Musgrove, you know, I, I don't know who the the best pitchers they could potentially face in that game. Luis are. Castillo. Castillo, yeah, one of your picks, right? Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I, but regardless, like, you know, Bueller and and Scherzer are up there among the, the top Scion contenders with Wheeler, admittedly, and with Corbin, Corbin Burns, probably. And I guess at this point, I would probably go with Scherzer just based on how incredible he has been since the Dodgers acquired him. But that's kind of a, a tough call because on a full season basis, there isn't that much of a difference between them. And Bueller is the incumbent. He is the, the guy who's been on this team, although Scherzer certainly has the standing in the game and the career accomplishments to come in and make that start. I think with anyone in the clubhouse being like, who's this interloper? Who's this new guy, this carpetbagger who's coming in and making this start for our team? But that'll be an interesting conversation. I wonder whether there's been a, a decision made there. Obviously, the Dodgers are hoping to avoid having to make that decision. You know who we didn't pick in the wildcard draft because the Cardinals were not even eligible at the time. Uh, yes. Adam Wainwright, Wainwright yeah. proven playoff performer. He has a 1.72 ERA over the last two months, including going into the ninth inning in a win against the Dodgers. I'm just saying it's not inconceivable that a, a Wade Miley or Adam Wainwright or something knocks out a team. We, we keep saying the Dodgers, imagine being a Giants fan and having the best regular season in years, even better than than all the World Series teams last decades and leading the Dodgers for four months, maybe getting caught right at the end and then seeing your playoff dreams die in one game. I, I think that is legitimately unfair. But again, it's a question about what baseball wants with this with this wild card structure. And imagine being a Giants fan who's old enough to remember 1993 when they won 103 <laughs> games and didn't make the playoffs at all. Um, yeah. So the other thing I'd say about that is this is an entertainment spectacle. The whole conceit of a wild card game, because we wanted it to be fair. I think the three division winners and the best of the rest to avoid, say, a 1993 NLS scenario. That seems like a, a pretty reasonable way to determine um, to determine a, a playoff field. But we wanted that that win, you know, that loser leaves town, the the TV spectacle, and it's been really good and really entertaining. Now, tell me, so let's say the the Dodgers end up 
with not not only Scherzer or Bueller on the mound, but Clayton Kershaw and Julio Arias and and God knows how many other pitchers who could start a wild card game, just not even like not even bringing their spikes to the ballpark because they're so far down the pecking order, and they run into. Adam Wainwright turning back the clock or Zach Wheeler shoving and, you know, Wheeler throws eight scoreless innings and Bryce Harper hits two solo home runs. And that's it. Like there's maybe one chance in 10 of that happening in a potential Dodgers Phillies playoff game. But like, that'd be hilarious as far as bits go. <laughs> Would there Tell be, me you don't want that. Uh, well, my question is, so people say this about the NCAA tournament and you can agree with it or not that, People say upsets are really fun in the first few rounds, but come the final four, you want some really strong teams remaining. You don't want just four Cinderella's all making the final four. You might dispute that if you want, but in the baseball scenario, would the playoffs lose something if the Dodgers or Giants get eliminated before they're actually able to play a full series? I don't know, but I think that is a possibility to be concerned about this scenario I mentioned in 2017. The Yankees were ahead of the Twins by six games, and they won the wildcard game. The Diamondbacks were better than the Rockies by six games. They won that wildcard game, and I don't think anyone would have been clamoring for the Diamondbacks to get to the NLDS and get swept by the Dodgers, but we still haven't had a really good team lose to a not-so-good team in the wildcard setup as currently constituted. It's obviously happened in divisional series before with bad teams making it to the championship series, but we haven't seen anything like this yet. Yeah, the one thing I would say is that while in general, I think that having better teams make the playoffs makes for better playoffs, in this case, we have seen a lot of the Dodgers lately. (laughs) They are the defending world champions. They're in the playoffs every single year. And so while I'm not personally sick of seeing the Dodgers and and I don't feel the the enmity (laughs) that enmity that I I have for past teams that just make the playoffs every single year. And and at a certain point, you're just like, okay, enough already. Let's see someone new. I think there was some potential for for the Dodgers to be villains of the season, which is a storyline I was kind of looking at before the season started. Just broadly, I I don't think anyone's going to be super upset not to see the Dodgers make a, a not deep playoff run this year other than Dodgers fans, obviously, just because they've gotten so much exposure in the playoffs and they finally broke through last year. And I don't think anyone really holds the the 2020 of it all in the short season against them or, or, you know, thinks that detracts from that championship in a meaningful way. So at this point, you know, they've already gotten that monkey off their back and, and we've seen them so much that I think we're ready for a, a change. And then with the Dodgers, you know, they've been the most entertaining team i think this year certainly the most surprising team with the giants they've been one of the best teams this year and certainly the most surprising and so one of the best storylines in the game maybe the best this year on the other hand they did win a whole lot of world series lately with some of the players who are still on this team so again like it's not like you're talking about you know if the padres were in this situation for instance the padres have never won a world series And until very recently, they had not been good and people had not seen them in the playoffs. So if the Padres were knocked out after one game after a great season or the White Sox, let's say, who have this core that, you know, hasn't had a whole lot of playoff exposure or the Blue Jays, if they make it, you know, like these teams that are kind of on the rise that are fairly recent arrivals that have these great fun mixes of young, talented face of baseball type players like. If one of them were knocked out after an equivalently excellent season, 
I think in a way that would be worth lamenting more than losing the Dodgers or the Giants, whose fan bases have had a lot to be happy about over the last decade or so. Yeah, I think I would definitely be sadder to lose the Giants just because they're a fun story. And even though those names are familiar, Posey, Belt, Longoria, Brandon Crawford, and so on, Johnny Cueto, there's been enough daylight between now and the last time they were relevant in any any kind of of playoff picture that uh, it's, it's fun. It's a renaissance. It's not just a continuation of, of even year nonsense. And, uh, or the Taylor Swift, uh, Taylor Swift effect that we've studied on on this site in years past. But yeah, I it would be different. I, I'll, I'll say this: I don't mourn teams that lose in the wild card round all that much, all that much more than uh, than teams that don't really get a fair shake in the division series. Like they're, I think of like the the 20, 2014 A's as as an, I mean, and that team. They lost in the wild card round, and they they earned losing in the wild. They card lost round, that but, game four times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not only that, but like they played like three hundred baseball down the stretch. I don't know the exact numbers. Please don't don't at me with facts. But I mean that they should have won the division by plenty, and they ended up in the uh, in the wild card game. And not only that, but playing on the road. But anyway, I do have that. Or the the 2008 Brewers or another team with CC Sabathia and Ben Sheets who uh, who ended up missing the the playoffs. Like if you only get one crack and you get knocked out in the fir- in the first round, it stings. I think in in the same way that a wild card loss would. Um, I guess the only difference is guarantee you're guaranteed to to get a home game, uh, which is important for fans. But I don't know. I I think the Giants are close to oh it would suck to lose that team. Uh, but I still might err on the side of, wouldn't it be hilarious? <laughs> you just want to see the world. Burn. It is It is wild to see how close the NL West race has shrunk. I uh, was completely offline Wednesday sundown to Thursday sundown for Yom Kippur. So when I like turned my phone and computer off and everything, the Giants were up by two and a half games, as they seemingly have been for weeks now, close enough to be mildly interesting, but it seemed like they were never going to lose enough games to let the Dodgers back into the race. Last night, I finished my fast. I take a sip of water and turn on my phone and see that the Dodgers are only one game back because the Padres did them a solid. So it is now a race once again, and we are increasing the odds of my number one dream from a couple pods back of a Dodgers-Giants playing game to see who gets the, the wild card game against Adam Wainwright or someone else of that caliber. The Fangraphs playoff odds, which have been like, there was no Giants lead too great for, for Fangraphs to, uh, to think the Dodgers wouldn't overhaul it. They finally switched back briefly this week to, uh, to the Giants being the, the divisional favorites. Uh, I'm looking at this because this is going to impact our um, our World Series champion auction draft. <laughs> because I went with the I went with the Giants and the points, and uh, I was feeling good about that until Zach, you know, took his his spiritual uh, uh, spiritual recess. So maybe now that you're back online the order will be restored and the Giants will pull out a little bit more of a cushion. Yeah, that's the important thing in all this really is the outcome (laughs) of our drafts. I think that's what... I don't even remember three of the teams I picked in that draft. (laughs) You don't have to. Yeah, because I actually ended up with the Phillies because I didn't want Did I? Wow. Go Phillies then. I didn't even know. (laughs) 
I just know Ben has every team in the AL yes, East. That's right. And the Brewers. Yes. Uh, that still stinks. I wanted wanted the Brewers, but I just had to have the White Sox. And yeah. Uh so what what I think Bear's mentioning is that this week we did have our first playoff versus clinch. So the Giants and the Dodgers are both in. Uh, which I don't know, it seems like they should have clinched a while ago. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things but at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. The logjam at the top of the NL West, I think, is less interesting to me than how how like this crabs climbing out of a bucket of a, a race for the second wild card is shaking out because all these teams are terrible <laughs> and they seem to be equally terrible in wildly different ways from day to day, and it's made it very hard to to handicap this race. Yeah, I mean, this is probably stealing Zach's bid here, but I feel like the Padres are the best team in the bunch, even if they have not played notably better than most of the other teams. I think, obviously, they've been extremely hard hit by injuries and pitcher injuries, and so have a whole lot of teams this year. There are just a lot of injuries in general. But I think the Padres, I mean, if you're 
facing your wildcard opponent, and, and I'm kind of looking ahead to our unnamed weekend preview segment here, but if you're facing the Cardinals, these are, you know, as close as you come to most must-win games without them technically being must-win games, and you're throwing Jake Arietta and Vince Velasquez in two of those games, just like discards from bad teams who, at least in Arietta's case, it just does not appear to be a major league pitcher at this point. And you've gotten so far down the depth chart that those are your best options or you've talked yourself into those being your best options because now Chris Paddock is hurt again and Blake Snell, who had actually turned his season around and was the most reliable Padre starter for months, he's back on the IL now too. And so if you get to that point where you're not even picking up replacement level pitchers. You're picking up Jake Arrieta, who has been substantially sub-replacement this year, and you're starting them against the Cardinals. I mean, that's not great. But if the Padres end up winning this thing, I'll at least feel like, okay, there's the bones of a good team here, a team that we thought was actually going to give the Dodgers a, a run for their money for that division title. And this is probably going to continue to be a good team. And it has a lot of young, watchable, interesting stars and so there's that like if if the Padres sneak in here I won't feel like they're a a terrible team that somehow snuck in I'll feel like they were a good team that somehow turned into a mediocre team just because a lot of things went wrong Vince Velasquez being a Padre I saw that in the outline and thought that there had been some sort of typo because that was another thing that crossed the radar while I was offline Ben, when you said that you were going to steal my bit, I thought you were going to talk about the tiebreaker Ah, scenarios mm -hmm. because right now, according to Fangraphs, there is a 3% chance of a three-way tie for the AL wildcard and a 3% chance of a three-way tie for the second NL wildcard. So it's a possibility. 3% isn't nothing. There are obviously much greater odds for a two-way tie about uh, 18% in both leagues of a two-way tie for the second wild card and a 15% chance of a tie between the Dodgers and Giants. So combine all those probabilities together and there are decent odds that we get at least one playing game at this point. Again, it's still not likely, so Ben can give me his pessimistic take about this if he wants, but I still dream there isn't that much time left and the teams are all still huddled really close together. That really is the the dichotomy between the two of you. Like, Zach uses math to find the wonder in the universe and Ben uses math to be like, yeah, it's not going to (laughs) happen. There is no joy. So the Padres using, first of all, like Velasquez and Arietta, not just guys off bad teams or bad pitching staffs. Like, that could have been the starting pitching matchup in that 17-8 to game we let off the show with if if a couple things had broken differently. But this reminds me, I guess this is a very, very optimistic reading of of the Padres situation. Remember, Cleveland in 2016 had a lineup that was nowhere near as as good as San Diego's, but also had that the same thing that the Padres went into the season with, which was they've got more pitchers than they can use. And so they built it. They've like injury proof their their roster and they've got so much depth and that's got to be so scary. And then everybody got hurt. And they ended up with Ryan Merritt pitching the the clincher in the ALCS. And so maybe is Vince Velasquez the uh, the Ryan Merritt of 2021? Time will tell. And 
Wasn't Ryan Merritt's thing never walking anyone? I don't think Vince Velasquez quite fits Very, that very different pitchers. This is a, a very clumsily built, very rickety metaphor uh, that we're working with here. That That is an optimistic overview. When uh, I saw the Padres' rotation options now, especially with Snell out, it reminded me of the 2011 Red Sox, who famously collapsed. And they, I think, were so hard out for pitchers that they were if I'm remembering correctly, trying like considering, to trade for Bruce yeah, Chen for Chen one for, start when oh, they couldn't use him on the playoff roster. Yeah, yes. exactly. And they didn't end up doing that, but that's how dire the situation was. And that's what signing Velasquez at this point uh, reminds me of. So maybe it'll turn out as well as Ryan Merritt, but uh, the 2011 Red Sox are not a particularly optimistic comp. And the Cardinals, like <laughs> we would be probably talking about them more. I mean, I, I know I've seen people compare like, hey, the, the Blue Jays made up this deficit and now they're in playoff position as we speak and everyone's buzzing about the Blue Jays, the Cardinals have done the same thing, essentially. And no one's really talking about the Cardinals. And I think they're much, they're good reasons to talk about the Blue Jays more than the Cardinals. The Blue Jays are a better team. They've been a better team all year long, just looking at run differential and expected record and all of that. And they're just a, a more... Cardinals are still yeah, underwater. And, and they're a more exciting team, frankly. And they have, you know, pursued a, a playoff spot with more vigor than the Cardinals just coming into the season. So the fact that the Cardinals are here is, I suppose, more of a, a testament to other teams kind of collapsing or semi-collapsing than it is the Cardinals being just a, a world beater or anything. It's like, you know, the Padres haven't been able to get out of their own way for a while. Neither have the Mets. Like, none of these other teams is, is setting the world on fire here. And, and the Cardinals are just the team that's kind of like plugging away in sort of a, a mediocre way. And that has been enough to right now, as we speak, be in that position to, to be the team that potentially takes down the NL West Titan. And I know a lot of people are bracing themselves for like how Cardinals that would be just to kind of, you know, be the team that is still standing there and to take out the Dodgers or the Giants, even though no one is really excited to see that. I guess what it is with the Cardinals, like one reason why they are not good, but competent is defense, which has kind of been a, mm -hmm. a hallmark of the Cardinals for a while now. And even though they let Colton Wong walk away and go to a division rival, they still have a very solid defensive team. And right now they are third in the majors in defensive efficiency behind the Dodgers and the Astros. They're right behind the Astros. And that's one of those sort of unsung qualities that I think is kind of easy to overlook, but that is a big part of why they're there without really those star level offensive performances or other than Wainwright, even star level pitching performances. Like when you look at a team and you don't see a, a whole lot of flashy stats and yet that team is in playoff position, well, it could be because they've outplayed their run differential, but it could also be because they're good at defense and we don't pay attention to defensive stats as much as the other sort of stats. Yeah, you look at the stars they've added, it's even like Goldschmidt and Arenado are fantastic defenders in addition to good hitters at the corners. One of the most fun stats when I was looking around at Adam Wainwright earlier is that uh, baseball savant tracks outs above average, not just for fielders, but for the pitchers. So we can see which pitchers have been hurt and helped most by their defense. Right now, the second place pitcher in most outs saved when he was on the mound is Yusei Kikuchi. Uh, the Mariners have saved 11 runs with Kikuchi on the mound. 
with Adam Wainwright on the mound, he is number one, the Cardinals have saved 22 outs. Hmm. So the Cardinals have been twice as good for Wainwright as any other defense has for any other pitcher. Granted, that's uh, partially a, a volume stat, so it helps that Wainwright has thrown a lot of innings. But I think that's that one stat kind of epitomizes how the Cardinals have gotten back in the race and why it's been, as Ben said, more of a quiet insertion rather than the Blue Jays who are getting there by bashing home runs every night. Oh, I mean, the other thing is the Cardinals are have only been doing this for like a week. And part of the thing is that everybody else is collapsing around them. I think the the Blue Jays had a longer runway. Like they had to go on a hot streak of, of two or three weeks while the in order to make up all that ground on the uh Yankees and Red Sox. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it's quiet, but you know, you mentioned getting rid of Colton Wong, who's been very good for for Milwaukee. Like, yeah, it's not like Nolan Arenado has no defensive reputation. It's not like, you know, Harrison Bader's glove is the only reason that that he's an everyday center fielder. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe this is some sort of Cardinals devil magic that's that's going on. But the other thing, it's they're on pace to be an eighty-five win team, and it's just kind of hard to be like get, you know, really excited about. Nobody it, can know. see the hand gestures you just made, Mike. Audio medium. Yeah, you say, all right, they're going to hear hand gestures. They're going to think, like, I was pumping my fist with excitement. I was Words uh, words failed me for the moment. It's a bad time to, for that to happen when you're recording a podcast, I guess. Um, Zach, I'm curious your thoughts on this Cardinals run being, uh, I'll just I'll just throw the phrase out there, Jack Flaherty Ewing theory. <laughs> 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 they didn't they make the NLCS does that disqualify them from Ewing theory consideration he was quite good for that team he pitched uh, game five against Atlanta if I recall correctly no I, I think it's fun to see like the Cardinals do this with Wainwright as opposed to Flaherty that definitely the fact that this is coinciding with the Yadier Molina and catching the 300th game together it does bring back a lot of memories of old Cardinals without pushing forward into this next generation that Flaherty is supposed to represent. So I suppose the answer is yes, but also he might be coming back soon. So imagine the one-two punch that's going to be. Who needs Scherzer and Bueller when you have Flaherty and Wainwright? Or maybe it's going to upset the balance. Maybe Adam Wainwright's going to see Jack Flaherty and think he can relax. Maybe he can stop telekinesising the ball into his fielder's gloves because Flaherty's got this handled. I mean, given that right now they're starting Jay Happ and John Lester in the rotation, each of whom have FIPS above five since joining St. Louis, I think Flaherty will be a welcome upgrade down the stretch. Very good rotation in like 2011. <laughs> John Lester, Jay Happ, and, and Adam The Wayne. Padres would kill for any of those guys. <laughs> what the Padres would do for Jay Happ right now? Oh, man. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's go to another favorite player. Uh, Somewhat outside the um, the playoff race, another favorite player of this podcast, Shohei Otani, has been named to the Time 100. Uh, and on our outline, I posed the question, is Time 100, the number 100, supposed to be his batting average for the past month? <laughs> Rim shot! <laughs> ben, you have to be just, just bubbling over yeah. with pride at, at seeing your man so honored. Getting that that glowing write up by Alex Rodriguez in, in the pages of Time <laughs> yes, Magazine. I saw that uh, batting average shot on our outline and, and almost didn't show up today, but it's a deserved one. I will give you that. But 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's it's notable to have a baseball player on a list like this. I, I don't know when the last time a, an MLB player appeared on the Time 100 was, but I'm guessing it doesn't happen often these days just because even when you make lists of like the top 100 figures in sports or whatever, you know, when ESPN does that sort of thing, you're lucky if a baseball player sniffs those sorts of lists. So to have it in a, a more mainstream, non-sports specific list is kind of cool. And I think it is justified in the sense that he has been kind of a crossover transcendent sports figure this year. But I wonder because it's it's like the hundred most influential people, right? That's ostensibly the the rubric here. And I think the jury is still out on whether Shohei Otani has been or, or will be influential. Now, he's influential in the sense that he's made me watch way more Angels games this year than I would have otherwise. But that's the influence yeah, Time Magazine that's, is looking if for. That's what yeah. Time is going for here. Well, time can sometimes be value neutral. Yes, that is their, true. Their person right. Of the year. So maybe <laughs> sometimes it's a, a villain. That it, they're saying he has an influence, but that influence is not right. necessarily. But right. I wonder, I mean, has he influenced people? Are more people watching baseball, paying attention to baseball because of Otani? Or will he have an influence on the way baseball works? Will there be more two way players or just more? kids getting into baseball because they got into Shohei Otani. I don't know. Certainly there were parts of this season and and some of his high points where I think he became a part of the national conversation in a way that baseball players generally don't just because baseball's falling tends to be so much more regional than national. So I guess that's influential, but it sort of remains to be seen whether he is just the outlier of all outliers or whether we actually see some sort of successor to Otani or whether he has opened the doors in some way to more flexibility and and less specialization when it comes to sports or any other arena. To answer your question, Ben, uh, it looks like Otani is the second baseball player ever to be named to the Time 100. First was Chen Ming Wong back in 2007 <laughs> before injuries cost okay, his I career. I did not see that. Yeah, he, uh, <laughs> you could have given me a yeah, thousand I, I guesses. I didn't even, I, I didn't even ask. Give me a thousand like, guesses guess before I remembered that Chen Ming Wong existed. <laughs> he did because of his popularity in Taiwan and the yeah. cultural impact. Uh, Chen Ming Wong was one of my oh, yeah, absolute favorite great. pitchers to watch back yeah, then, of course. I was yeah. biased as a Yankees fan, but he was also fantastic until yeah. he got hurt uh, wasn't he one of the guys who got hurt running the bases? Yeah, I, I guess so. I should support your anti-DH <laughs> mm-hmm. take now, Ben. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, he was great, obviously great in a very different way than Shohei Otani. And hopefully Otani's major league transcendence lasts a lot longer. But uh, to be number two and the first guy was 15 years earlier does say something, I guess. Yeah, and I think that speaks to a point I was going to make, which is that when an athlete ends up on a list like this, they're they tend to have, it tends to be for something other than like pure sporting reasons that it's not just that this person's really good at at their sport. It's that there's some social or political impact or or economic impact where it's not even um, like somebody like Marcus Rashford was, was on this list last year, I believe because of all the, uh, the work he had been doing to alleviate child poverty or child uh, hunger in in the UK. Uh, And in addition to, being an outstanding soccer player. And Otani's not, you know, this is not a knock against him. He's not obligated to do anything other than show up and be great at baseball, but he's not every everything that that we basically know about him, everything that he does takes place between 
the lines. And that's, I think that's unusual for a, a, an athlete who gets, who, who gets uh, held up as this major world, you know, that this is what Time's saying explicitly is that he's a major influential figure in world culture. And just to be able to do that purely on the basis of his, his baseball achievements, you know, I don't think that Time is, is saying, oh, he's going to usher in a new era in, in minor league player development, but he is. I, I think, you know, I wrote this like three years ago when the Rays were bringing up uh, Brendan McKay and Jay Cronenworth before they traded him. Like, he's going to show that it's possible to develop two-way players within the American system uh, in a way that maybe we didn't realize was was a possibility five years ago. And I think that's going to have a huge impact, particularly the way baseball roster construction is going on or is is going from uh, from now on. But he's bringing eyes into the sport. He's something new in a sport that hasn't really had something new to, to hook in, you know, to, to say, oh, you haven't seen anything like this. And it's obvious to even a casual viewer who watches like the home run derby in the world series and nothing else. And that's, that doesn't come along every day, it, particularly in a sport with, with, uh, you know, that's slow to adapt, I guess, or is kind of, it's, it's hard to, to be creative or play it beautifully, um, in baseball in a very self-evident way, the way it is in, you know, sport like basketball or soccer. Um, so I think that just speaks to the, the boundary pushing that he's yeah. done. So, I mean, this is, I, I just got way too, you know, gave way too gravity to a joke award <laughs> that doesn't like, you know, really mean anything. I put this in the running order as a bit, but I think that, you know, if you want to examine it, I think that it illustrates the crossover appeal that, that Otani's had that we've talked about on this podcast, you know, every week, all year. Before we leave this segment, I have to, ask you, because I didn't ask you to identify Chen Ming Wang, I'm going to ask you one guessing question. Uh, let's see how much the sport of baseball has changed in 15 years. In the year 2006, Chen Ming Wang, uh, before being named to the Time 100, finished in second place in the American League Cy Young voting. How many strikeouts per nine innings did Chen Ming Wang have in 2006? Well, he was not a, a big strikeout guy even for that time, no. right? Because he was a, a really good ground baller. So... Yeah. I'm going to guess, man, f- five? I was going to go higher. I was in the five, so I'm going to say like 5.8. 3.1? No, <laughs> surely not. 3.1 strikeouts for nine, and he finished oh second in Cy Young voting. God. He won 19 games. <laughs> He threw 218 innings, which like nobody's ever going to hit again. And he struck out 76 total batters. <laughs> Garrett Cole does that in like a month and a yeah. half now. Wow. Yeah, that's a pretty good stat. <laughs> oh my goodness. I love yeah, Chen no, Ming Wong. Wow. wow. He didn't even have like a low BABIP, right? He was a 292, right? I mean, it wasn't like he had some, you know, way out of whack, like luck on, on balls and play. I, I guess with home runs, maybe to some extent he did, but like that was workable at that time. I mean, part of why he went 19 and six is that he was pitching for the Yankees and I assume that he had great run support. But still, I remember that season quite fondly. 
effectively as well. And, you know, like he was 19 and seven the next year, too, if we're talking about win loss records all of a sudden with sort of the same ERA. So it wasn't even a a one time like Aaron Small sort of run. He was good for multiple years. And, you know, then he got hurt and he wasn't anymore. But still. He was also a ground ball pitcher in front of Jeter and Arod, yeah. who rated horrifically at defense they that season. They combined for negative 30 defensive <laughs> yeah. runs saved. Imagine what Shen Ming Wong's ERA yeah, could have been. like ah, 63% wow. ground ball rate back in those days. Yeah, that was something. Last thought on, on Otani. Yeah, I, I think that there is some potential, at least, that players who have a legitimate case for being two-way will at least be allowed to show that they can't do it before they are relegated to one way or another. I don't think we're going to get another Otani anytime soon, but we might get another, you know, someone who can hack it kind of on both sides of the ball and can at least fake being a two-way player or could be adequate at both things. I was looking back recently at like John Olrude, who's one of the greatest two-way college players of all time. And the Blue Jays didn't even give him a look as a two-way player. It was like, nope, you're a hitter now. And, you know, that worked out fine for the Blue Jays and for John Olrude. But given that the two-way player college award is named after him and he didn't even get a shot in pro ball and, you know, he didn't play in the minors either, which was part of it. But still, like, you know, and he had the aneurysm and everything. There were some mitigating circumstances there. But I think if John Olrude comes along today, they at least give him a, a longer rope there and and have him prove that he can or can't do it before they say no. And, you know, there aren't a lot of Olrudes or Otanis out there, but I think that could be the benefit of this. I, I will say when I was working on a story earlier this year about Otani and, and how he became a two-way player in Japan, like there has not been another two-way player in Japan since he left several years ago or even since he debuted there back in 2013 in the majors. So it's not as if there have been a whole host of Otani copycats who've come along. I mean, that's what you get out of the A-Rod right mm-hmm. now. Is that, I mean, some of this, we know it's special. That I, I, I just keep thinking about the the way that, um, that Bill James described Babe Ruth is, Yes, Babe Ruth was special. Yes, Babe Ruth had more power than everybody else. But until, but he showed that it was possible to play the game differently. And you know, how many times has that been written about somebody like Steph Curry in the NBA? That yes, this person is exceptional, but by proving that it can be done, it pushes other people to to experiment. And I think that's what we're going to see with uh, with Otani. I think you know there might be something to. I, Two great two-way prospects with ambiguity about whether they're going to be hitters or pitchers, or they come out all the time, even as high as like very high-level college ball. Um, and it's, I think those that want to, because not all of them want to play both ways, and not, and some of them have strong opinions about whether they they want to hit or pitch, and that affects their prospect status. But yeah, I. How can you look at what Otani's doing and not want to try if you have anything approaching the physical gifts to to make a real effort? I mean, I, I just think that he is in a like an imagination pushing kind of athlete, and that's what 
makes him one of the most hundred hundred most influential people in the world, even though he's not particularly interesting or or noteworthy. Yeah, off the and field. you know, regardless of how his great season ends, and it looks like there's a chance he may be shut down as a pitcher now. And as you noted, he has not hit well at all lately. But I think you know, even if he doesn't end up with the just like you know ten win season or something that we thought he was going to get at one point, or even if you know, and and the the AL MVP debate has heated up <laughs> you you, uh, you, you mocked yeah. me for suggesting that he might not have that thing sealed up some time ago and and said i <laughs> yeah i mock you a lot i don't think you, should you said it might be a reverse it. jinx i was trying to to put on guerrero or something but you know now that gap has has seriously narrowed and guerrero has his own narrative case for that so that has recurred but i think regardless of who ends up getting the MVP or who ends up getting the home run title in the American League. I saw a fact the other day that this will probably be the first season ever when the top three home run hitters in baseball will all be non-U.S. born because you have Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and you have Sal Perez and you have Shohei Otani, three guys who come from three different countries, three different big baseball markets. And I feel like that is one of the stories of the season, just that the most compelling players, in many cases, the best players who have really seized our interest this season, have kind of reflected the worldwide nature of baseball. I mean, it's kind of cool. Like, that is part, I think, of why Otani made this list, is that he is an international superstar. And I think the makeup of the top of the home run leaderboard, and really maybe the war leaderboard, too, does kind of reflect baseball's, you know, not unique necessarily, but unusual position as a a sport that really encompasses, you know, people from all over the world who have some enthusiasm and and knack for baseball. So it's been fun to watch. I think that, you know, many of the faces of this season, at least, if not of baseball, have been from all different places. And that's kind of cool. Okay. Very well said. I've realized that we've been talking about this for a while and haven't gotten to uh, another topic I wanted to hit, which is Ryan Braun made his retirement official this week. Uh, Ben, I was going to say that you had addressed this on Effectively Wild, and I didn't want to have you repeat any of the points that that you made, but uh, Jay Jaffe, friend of the show, seemed to have Mm -hmm. done all the talking there. So how do you look at, and you know, I, I think, agree broadly with with a lot of the stuff that, that Jay said, but when you're looking back at Ryan Braun, what are you going to remember from his career? How are you going to deal with the t- totality? Yeah, of his I legacy? mean, there have been players who I think their legacies have been a lot less stained by whatever PD issues came up than Ryan Braun, who, you know, probably deserved that a lot less than Ryan Braun. I mean, not only did he test positive and and, you know, take things and a lot of people will just sort of write you off or, you know, just remember you as a, as a cheater basically because of that, you know, he did it in a way that really brought, I think, more than the usual dishonor upon himself just because of mm-hmm. the whole way that he, you know, maintained his innocence and cast dispersions on the process and the people who were transporting his sample and, you know, even invoked the the specter of anti-Semitism and, and all of these other things that went into that story. And, you know, ultimately you you find out that that was all just BS pretty much. So I think that sort of thing, you know, he got booed in the latter portion of his career, really, wherever he went, 
other than Milwaukee, where he understandably remains pretty popular. And that's something we've seen with a, a lot of players who have some PD taint on their record. And with a lot of them, you know, I, I forget sometimes like the fact that Nelson Cruz was suspended at some point, like, you know, there have been times when that is just completely dropped from my memory and, you know, it'll be part of his career biography, but maybe not the top line. Whereas with Bron, it seems like that's kind of become the top line and, you know, legitimately so, but obviously he was a great player for a really long time. And, you know, he, declined early enough and and didn't really play to an advanced age at a high level to the point where he wouldn't be a, a Hall of Fame contender anyway, even if he didn't have those marks on his record. But, you know, in his prime, he was pretty awesome and he helped bring that Brewers team back to prominence and contention. So it's a case where I'm sort of sorry that he spoiled that by his off the field actions and comments. I'll also remember Braun uh, from an on-field perspective. Obviously, his bat is the first thing that stands out. He was 34% better than league average over his career. He had a positive OPS plus every single season of his career, which I imagine not many guys who played 14 years can say. Oh, we but can look it up. <laughs> from, uh, a str- from a strategic perspective, I think Braun was when I... S- first started paying attention to defensive statistics was one of the first players who occupied a sort of new archetype in my mind, which is somebody who was an absolutely terrible third baseman then moved to the outfield and turned out to be pretty good there. Alex Gordon is another great example, Joey Gallo. But when Ryan Braun first came up, he was a negative 32 run third baseman in just 945 innings, which is unfathomably terrible, but he was positive in, in his career in the outfield. And I think he was a player that we see more and more uh, emulations of now in terms of that defensive trajectory. So I think that's an interesting aside about his career. Obviously, the the PED uh, drama is the first thing that stands out, kind of emphasizing what my mother always told me, which is if you do something wrong, that's okay, but don't make it worse with the lack of an apology or cover-up. So I think Ryan Braun is a perfect example there. (laughs) Thanks, Mom. My mom said the exact same thing to me, except she invoked Richard Nixon when she was explaining (laughs) that to me when I was like five years old. It's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what Watergate is, but I promise I'll stop lying about the bad stuff I do. Stop Um, spying on... in. Never mind. <laughs> no joke should, to go with you that. You should there. not hide recording devices in your <laughs> yeah. brother's bedroom. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, I I think there's a lot of room to to hold multiple ideas in your head about Bron. He was an incredible ball player, an incredibly fun ball player. Like even what you said about him being an abysmal defensive third baseman was fun because it brought a little chaos into the game. And he was an integral part of a lot of Really, really good, really fun Brewers teams uh, that I had uh, a really good time watching. Um, you know, with the PED stuff, I don't give two shits that he took PEDs as such, particularly because he got jammed up in biogenesis, which was like, I think from a moral ethical standpoint, worse than far worse than cheating at baseball, what, what MLB did and tried to... Um, tried to pull off with the the biogenesis investigation. But like you said, it's not, it's not about doing stuff wrong. It's about how you react to it. It's whether you lie about it. It's whether you, you know, try to, try to bully other people with it. And I think, yeah, that 
different people are going to remember him in different ways. I don't begrudge Brewers fans for having entirely positive memories of one of the best players in franchise history. You know, I probably would feel the same way about him in, in that situation. But it's I, he's a player where I, I think it's important to be able to you know, hold two thoughts in your head at the same time, which uh, it seems like it's something that that we don't seem to be willing to to do anymore. But a really incredible ball player, well earned retirement. Um, fourteen year, you know, fourteen productive years in the big leagues for the same team. Yeah. You don't see that very often. So, uh, happy some of the stuff to, we've been saying kind of reminds me of another guy who played a very bad third base for a while for the Brewers, who's Gary Sheffield, right? And Sheffield better player than Braun, played a lot longer than Braun, and I think he is a deserving Hall of Famer and and should be one, but he is someone who isn't, in part because he has some performance-enhancing stuff attached to him, and also because of that bad defense earlier in his career, right? Like, that really kind of tanked his war, but I think offensively, they're kind of comparable. I mean, Sheffield, again, better. You know, he's a 141 career WRC plus to Braun's 135, and Sheffield played a lot longer and a lot older than Braun, but you know, in terms of the offense, at least, I mean, there are a whole lot of actual Hall of Famers who were far, far, far worse hitters than either Gary Sheffield or Ryan Braun. So sometimes it's the other stuff that comes back to bite you. And with Sheffield, you know, he didn't handle the performance enhancing stuff uh, quite as poorly as Braun did, I guess. But a lot of people have still held that against him. Two players with very, very distinct yeah, ways of that holding too. the bat as well. All right, let's wrap the show up as we do every week with the unnamed weekend preview segment. Uh, Lots of competition between teams vying for playoff spots, but not necessarily teams vying for the same playoff spot. Uh, So I guess my just continuing with the the sicko mode um, theme of of the NL wildcard and NL East race, I'm going to go for Phillies Mets. Because if you thought the vibes of Billy's <laughs> Cubs were messed up with the the walk-off, was it a pass ball uh, in the game on Thursday? You ain't seen nothing yet. This is going to be uh, the game of the week on Sunday where we're going to get Kyle Gibson versus Rich Hill. God save us uh, in front of Alex Rodriguez and his antipathy for odd-numbered leads. <sighs> I guess watch it. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm kind of inclined to take a series that I can't in good conscience recommend that anyone watch really, which is Padres Cardinals, which like has huge playoff implications. And yet two of the Padres games will be started by basically unplayable pitchers at this point. Velasquez going on Friday and Arietta going on Sunday. And then Yu Darvish is in the middle of that sandwich and he has not pitched a whole lot better of late. So he'll be going up against Adam Wainwright, which, you know, in in theory should be a, a nice pitcher's duel. I don't know if Darvish will hold up his end of the bargain. But other than that, it's uh, not exactly what you would expect to see from two teams that are matching up in the thick of a playoff race in September. So you've got Miles Michaelis against Velasquez on Friday. And then on Sunday, I think you've got Arietta going up against Jay Happ. So yeah, it's not exactly marquee pitching matchups on Friday and Sunday, but these games matter. Someone has to win them, <laughs> even if it's more about just uh, being better at not losing them. 
I think I figured it out, the, the Padres thing. Do you guys remember in 2016 when Vince Velasquez struck out 16 oh, yeah. batters in a game and everybody thought he would, that, would, that mm-hmm. game was against the Padres? And, I, and maybe they just haven't scouted him since then. And they think he's still that guy and couldn't believe their luck when he ended up on, on the waiver wire. <laughs> oh, boy. So Zach, we've got we've got a car crash and a slightly different car crash. What are you choosing to direct our our listeners to this weekend? It's a really weird weekend. The American League has every single contender facing a non-contender. There is not a single exciting matchup in the American League unless you want to watch like if the Orioles take a game off the Red Sox or if the Twins can take a game off Toronto. That would obviously matter a lot. I think beyond the two series you both have mentioned, there are two others worth keeping an eye on. Atlanta visits San Francisco as both teams try to maintain their division leads. I am watching Dodgers against Reds, which is a potential and a wildcard preview. Specifically, I'm watching on Saturday as Max Scherzer faces Sonny Gray. And then later that night, we have Corbin Burns facing the Cubs. I think they are now a couple weeks away from finishing up a fantastic Cy Young race. I have a piece about it up on the site. I discovered that right now Corbin Burns leads all NL starters in strikeout rate, walk rate, and home run rate, and no pitcher has ever done all three of those in the same season before. The only pitchers who have managed all three of those in an entire career both pitched before integration. That's Walter Johnson and Mort Cooper. You can go read the article for a lot more about this potential feat, but Scherzer is charging hard. He's only uh, a couple fractions of a decimal away from Burns in both strikeout rate and walk rate. He also leads in ERA. He leaves in he leads in WHIP. So this is a really fun sign race. The fact that they're pitching essentially back to back on Saturday means you can just sit down for six hours and watch some baseball and some awesome starting pitching matchups. Yeah, you can watch Corbin Burns against the Cubs if you want to see somebody die. Well, okay. you, you know you can you can watch Burns pitch and then. When the Brewers are at bat, you can go flip over to Mike's game because the Phillies and Mets play at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> well, that includes the concludes the unnamed weekend preview segment. I guess <laughs> watch these games if you got nothing better to do. That'll do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB Show. Thanks as always to Zach and Ben for joining me. Thanks to Stefan Anderson uh, for producing today's episode. Thanks to Chen Ming Wong, Vince Velasquez, and Ryan Braun for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action and we'll see you next time.